Good morning, family. It's a pleasure to be with you guys, as it always is when we gather together and, and uh, go to God's Word. Amen? He is good. Um, a little confession before we start. I was handed a prayer request by a brother this morning, and I forgot to pass it on to Brother Rich. But it's okay. I wanted to pray with you guys real quick before we dove into the Word anyway. So let's go to the Lord. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for who you are. And Lord, that you're a God who has revealed himself to us. You've not hidden yourself, Lord. And even when we've rebelled, you came and you found us. And we give you glory, Lord, and, and you're the reason we're here this morning. So Lord, may our hearts be focused upon you. And Lord, we want to lift up Steve Bertelsman, Jack and Ann uh, Carell Meyer, and Lord, we pray for the he their health issues, Lord, touch their bodies, heal them, Lord Jesus. And Father, we ask again, Lord, this morning as we go to your word, Lord, we want to and we need to hear from you. Lord, we don't need my opinion or man's opinion or the worldly philosophies that we see so prevalent in our culture, Lord, but we, we need to hear from you. You alone, just as Peter said, have the words of life. So, Lord, come, breathe life into our hearts and our minds and our souls now. Speak to us and teach us this morning, we ask. And in your precious name we pray, and we all said, amen. Well, if you would turn with me to 1 Corinthians, we're going to continue our time together in 1 Corinthians as often as I have opportunity to be with you guys. We've been um, going through chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this letter to the church in Corinth from the Apostle Paul. And uh, we, we found so far, and we're going to be, uh, we're going to start in chapter 9, um, in verse 19, but uh, we found so far that uh, the church in Corinth had a lot of issues, which as we see that the church, even in the apostolic age, had a lot of problems we look at that, and of course it grieves our heart to see the issues that were going on. I mean, there was some terrible things that they were uh, allowing into the church and approving of, claiming that it was a part of their Christian liberties. Um, we're going to find some more issues that, uh, um, uh, Lord willing, later on in the, in the epistle as Paul continues to instruct them and correct the issues that are going on there. Um, but one of, the, uh, the, one of the big things that Paul really deals with throughout this letter is Christian liberties. Because that was the thing that they so often abused. And, and, uh, and they found their freedom in Christ. And, and indeed, our freedoms in Christ are, are amazing and many, right? And, and we have so much to be thankful for. Aren't you glad we're not under the law anymore? That we don't have to bring sacrifices, we have our sacrifice, Jesus Christ, right now pleading for us at the throne of our Heavenly Father, always making intercession for us, Scripture says. And we now have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. We don't have to go to a temple, we are the temples of the Holy Spirit of God. That's an amazing thing. And we have so many liberties but as Paul's going to point out here in these verses, these liberties can be misused in the Christian life. 
That is, that these liberties are not meant to go back to sin. They're not meant for self-indulgence. And that's what he begins to deal with now. In in chapter 8, he really began to talk specifically about our freedom in Christ because there were many of them who struggled with the idea of meat being sacrificed to idols and whether or not they should partake in that. And Paul said, listen, if you pray over it, you get it, you buy it from the marketplace, you pray over it, you ask the Lord to bless it, it you're not participating in, in the worship of idols. You have the freedom to do that. But if, if you're stumbled by it, if you struggle with it, then don't do it. And be sensitive to your brothers and sisters. And he goes on in chapter 9 and he talks about his freedom as an apostle and how he doesn't take advantage of his authority and his freedoms as an apostle. And so we come to verse 19, if you look there with me, of chapter 9 in 1 Corinthians. And he says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. And so here Paul talks about his freedoms, and he's explaining this is how you use your freedoms in Christ. And sadly, there have even been people, especially in our culture, in our cultural Christianity in America, who have taken this passage and even misused this. Would you guys agree with me this morning that in America, we've become very politically correct and seeker-sensitive. And what I mean by that is this, is that we are more worried about what men think than what God thinks. Wouldn't you say, say with me that that is something that permeates our culture? We are so concerned with offending people. And listen, I'm not saying we should go out and be jerks with the truth. Absolutely not. Speak the truth in love, amen? But speak the truth, (laughs) And we are so concerned with our own feelings and with the feelings of other people that we readily cast the truth aside so that we might just pat someone on the back as they're heading straight to judgment. And that's not love. But here, Paul describes how we should use our liberties. And as I said, oftentimes, you will find in this very seeker-friendly culture of American Christianity, people will take this and they'll say, oh, become all things to all men that I might win some. Therefore, I'm going to go and do what the world does so that I can get them to look at me and go, oh, hey, they're cool too. But let's look at it again and see if that's really what Paul is saying. Because it's easy to see how In our culture, people can use this to justify going into bars and drinking and going and being a part of parties that they shouldn't be a part of, laughing at jokes they shouldn't laugh at, just to, oh, well, I want to reach them. Well, is that what Paul is saying here? Look again in verse 19 with me. 
He says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. So what's the premise here? What what is Paul doing? What's his goal in when he says uh, that I become all things to all men? It's that he might serve them. You know what our flesh likes to do with these liberties in Christ? Our flesh likes to take the freedoms that Christ gives us and serve, guess who? ourselves right we like oh we have so many freedoms in christ and yes enjoy the freedoms you have in jesus but be careful that your flesh does not take advantage of them you know what i mean you've had those thoughts i'm sure as i have that well god's grace is there i can go ahead and do it and ask for forgiveness you ever have that thought come through your head you know who that's from that's from your flesh and from the enemy But Paul says, for though I am free from all men, that is, I'm not bound to them. I I, I do not live based upon what they say and upon their word. What What do I do? He says, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. What does that look like, Paul? Well, he goes on in verse 20. To the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law. Now notice how careful he is here. Because here's a temptation. As those without law, I become as one without law. And I'm glad he didn't leave it at that and move on to the next thing, aren't you? He clarifies for us. He says, not being without law toward God. So in other words, I don't just cast off all restraint. (laughs) I don't go to those who don't have law and just live in debauchery. I live for the Lord still. I live under the law of liberty toward Christ. I live by the Spirit. And he goes on, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be be partaker of it with you. And so Paul, when he's saying this, his intention is not to say that he becomes like the world so that he might reach the world. And it's very clear that he doesn't mean that because we have so many wonderful passages of Scripture, such as Romans 12, 1 and 2, in which Paul himself says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And in verse 2 he says, and do not be conformed to the world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So what Paul's saying here is is he's not conforming himself to the world. He's saying he's going and he's reaching into people's lives. And how does he do that? He says, well, when I approach a Jew, I approach them respectfully. I don't go up and throw a slab of bacon in their face and say, you should be free from this, right? That's a quick way to shut the ears of any person who's a Jew, isn't it? I don't go and disrespect their customs. Even though Paul in Acts was accused of bringing a Gentile into the temple, and that's how they got a big uprising against him, he didn't do that. He respected their customs, and he went to them as a Jew, and he identified with them so that he might bring the gospel to them. And then he speaks of those who are under the law. And there he's simply speaking of those who who were proselytes, who weren't 
literal ethnic Jews, but who had become Jews by religion and began to follow the law. He goes to them and he uses the law to preach the gospel to them. And then he talks next of those who are without law. You know, one of the things that can really hinder bridging the gap to those who didn't grow up in a Christian home is going to them and talking to them like they did. Is going to them and assuming that they know everything about Christianity that you know. You know, there are people, and, I, and I've, heard, I've heard stories that um, it surprised me because, I praise the Lord, I, I, I thank the Lord every day for my Christian heritage. I grew up as a pastor's kid, and there's a great blessing from that. And I grew up as from a little kid knowing right from wrong, and I praise the Lord for that every day. But I, I, I've heard so many stories about people who get saved. They're brand new baby Christians, and it's a surprise to them that living with their girlfriend is wrong and doesn't honor God. They're like, really? I shouldn't be doing that? And praise the Lord, in those ca these cases I've heard, that they move out because <laughs> the Lord's doing a work in their heart. But, but when I think about that, I'm like, man, they don't know that simple aspect of how to follow the Lord. And the, and the reality is, is they don't. And so what does Paul say? He, he doesn't go to those who, do, who don't know the law and start speaking the law to them as if they did. What does he do? He goes to those who are pagans without God. And he says, you know what? I'm not coming to you as a Jew who's special. I'm, I'm not coming to you as an apostle who is, who is much greater than you. I'm coming to you as someone who without Christ, I am in the same exact position as you are. He then talks about those who are weak. In verse 22, to the weak I become as weak that I might win the weak. And basically what Paul is saying here is this, is that, you know, I'm not going to be that Pharisee who stood next to the publican. Remember that story Jesus told of the two men who entered to pray and one stood with his hands raised, the Pharisee, and the other was the publican bowed, beating his chest, saying, Lord, be merciful unto me, a sinner. And the Pharisee looked down and said, Lord, I thank you I'm not like this man, right? But I'm not going to be like that. When I approach someone who's, who's broken, who's weak, I don't go to them and say, yeah, you just uh, you need to be a little more lucky like me and, and uh, be awesome like I am. No, he, he goes to them and he says, listen, apart from Christ, I, just like you, have nothing. And one of the things that we can apply to in our life as Christians, is when we go to people and we tell them the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ, is to be sure not to make them feel as if they are different than us without Jesus. Is to go to the person who's struggling with homosexuality and tell them, listen, God wants to deliver you from your sin. And without Jesus, you and I have the same exact fate. That is a message they need to hear. Amen? 
to go to those who are bound in alcoholism, bound in drugs, caught in adultery, caught in their addictions, and say to them, without Jesus, I am you. I am you. I hope and I pray that the church in America understands this. Now some of our, the issues in our culture where the world looks at the church and says, oh, you're just judgmental. Sometimes that's just them feeling convicted and not liking it and they're looking for someone to blame. It's not always the church's fault. But we need to be careful how we communicate the gospel. Amen? We need to be faithful in that. Amen? We need to be careful to, to, to relay the gospel in the truest way possible. And I tell you what, we're never more unfaithful with the gospel when we set ourselves up as something different than those whom we're preaching to. When we say, I'm special and you're not. So be sure, when we preach the gospel, when we proclaim the truth, to become all things to all men. If you're sp speaking to a Jew, you use that. If you're speaking to someone who, 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 who has a background in the law, take them to the law and use the law. If you're, if you're talking to someone who has never understood Christianity, start from the beginning. That they, there's a God that they will one day have to answer to but loves them. Become all things to all men that we, by, just as Paul says, that I might by all means save some. Verse 23, look there with me. It says, now this I do for the gospel's sake that I may be partaker of it with you. Now in the original um, uh, Greek manuscripts, that, uh, and you'll notice probably in your Bibles, that the word you is italicized. That's added in the New King James translation. Now if you have a different translation, um, such as the NASB, um, it'll just say that I may be a partaker with it. And that is probably a better translation. Um, the U was added because the translators thought that Paul was talking to the, to the Corinthians, when in fact it makes more sense that Paul would say that I might be a partaker in the fruit of the gospel. You know, and, and that's what Paul is really driving at here. He wants to be a part of what God is doing in the spreading of the gospel and in the salvation of the lost. And so he goes on in verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it, and everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So here, Paul outlines another aspect of our Christian liberties. And in, in, in the um, verses 19 through 23, he says our Christian liberties are not meant to serve us. They're meant to serve others. And here he says our Christian liberties are not meant for leisure and laziness. They're meant so that we might have more freedom. To go and to run the race. To go and fight the good fight. 
Now, why is it like this? And I want you to think about this for a moment. With Israel, there was a temple that was located in one place. In a city that didn't move, Jerusalem. In a land that was set with boundaries and promised to the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, that was located in a certain place. And God used Israel and set them up in the land for a reason. And it was because God intended Israel to be a light to all the other nations And the goal of Israel in the Old Testament was to be a come-and-see witness to the truth of God's glory and His nature. And we see that happen, don't we, in Israel? And it's sad we don't see them be as faithful as they should, but we're not as faithful as we should be either. (laughs) So let's not cast too harsh judgmental eyes on them. But think of when the Queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon, right? At that moment, Israel was being a witness for who God was. Think of the the testimony that went throughout the land of Canaan and beyond as God led them out of Egypt with all the plagues and, and defeated nation and people after people after people and gave them the land. And the dread and the fear of Israel was on all those who heard. They were a come and see nation. They had a location and a temple, and that's why their religion uh, is, and their covenant, rather, was so restricted. They had to do this. They had to be this way. They couldn't go into a Gentile's house, right? But now we have liberties in Christ, and we have freedom in this new covenant. And why do we have freedom in the new covenant? Because we're no longer a come-and-see people, are we? We're a go-and-tell people, aren't we? We're a people who is called to go to the ends of the earth to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to every tribe and every tongue and every nation, aren't we? And so God says, now I'm changing the way I'm using my people because now they have my spirit. Now they are my temples, so I'm going to send them out. And so what does that require? Well... We can't be restricted to a place for worship. So what does God do? You're now the temple. You go and you worship God in your heart, through the Spirit and in truth, wherever you go, and you take the gospel out. And that is what these liberties are meant for. We couldn't be a very good go-and-tell kind of people if we couldn't go into unbelievers houses right if we couldn't enter into certain places because of restrictions that god would set upon us but he set us free from that and so now we may run we may go and we may fight and we may live for the lord and we have freedom to do that and look at verse 21 with me paul describes the use of his liberty with two different examples. The first one is this in verse 24. Do you not know, he says, that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate, that is self-controlled, diligent in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. And so the first one The first example he gives is a runner. 
I saw a funny, uh, a funny meme on Facebook the other day. It said that uh, just to see how good these Olympians are, you should just put like a normal person in the race to see how much faster they all are. Because, you know, you watch these guys, you're like, whoa, they're fast. But they're like, they're all neck and neck. And so it doesn't look that impressive, right? On the TV, you're like, okay, they're running around a track. Okay, they broke some record. Whoop-de-doo. Yeah, let's put Josh Denham in there and see what happens, right? You'd be like, oh, it's, um, wait, clock's still going. He's got one more lap yet, guys. You know, sorry. Um, If you want to go get snacks, and then you can come back and see the end of the, you know, like that, that just... That, that would be a good picture of how dedicated and how really uh, amazing athletes these guys are and how disciplined they are, right? You put a test subject in there of an average human being and see what happens. These Olympians, man, they, they are dedicated to their sport. They eat, sleep, And every waking moment, everything they do is toward that one goal. You know, what is the Olympics? Every four years, isn't it? I mean, that's a long time. You know, and they maybe only get a couple of shots. And back in in their day, um, there was the, the, um, and I think it's pronounced, Ithsmian Games um, in, in Corinth. And it was second in, in grandeur only to the actual Olympics. Um, that was held in, in, in Greece. And so um, the, uh, they knew what he was talking about. They saw these athletes, how disciplined they were, how they trained themselves, and they disciplined their bodies. And so in verse 20, uh, 20 I'm sorry, 25, he says, uh, And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things, Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. You know, at the the person who won the race, you know what they would get? They didn't even get gold medals. They got this little wreath of leaves. It's like whoop-de-doo, right? (laughs) And I don't know why it was just a wreath of leaves. Maybe because by the next time they had it, the, the crown would have faded away so they can crown a new person. But Paul's entire point here is this, is their reward is very, very temporal. But look at how dedicated they are. And Paul says, our reward is not temporal. Our crown does not perish. It doesn't diminish. It doesn't rot away. And let's stop just for a moment and consider that. Your reward in Christ never, ever fades You know, we have such wonderful promises, and I know you know this verse, and I pray it doesn't begin to sound cliche to you. I have to fight to keep it fresh in my heart. But in Romans 8.28, it says that God works all things to the good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And that's just not some sticker you place on your bumper or something you post on Facebook every once in a while to make someone feel warm and fuzzy. That is a truth that our God does not let one thing in your life go to waste. He doesn't let one thing that happens to you 
And he doesn't let one thing in your life that occurs, any trial you go through, nothing is wasted. And that's, that's amazing. Because I look at my life and I just think, man, that's a waste. Now, oh, that's pretty useless. <laughs> Why did that happen? There doesn't seem to be any reason for this. You ever feel that way? God's using it. I don't know how, and we probably won't see how he uses most of the things in our life until we get on the other side of eternity. But what God is doing is, is he's making us more like his son, Jesus. You know, it blows my mind to even think about this. Do you know God will use your sin in your life, ultimately, for your good? Your failures, he will use. What do you mean? Well, number one, it glorifies his grace, doesn't it? that you can still come back to him. So it points us to him, and we again have to say, Lord, you're so merciful. You're so kind to me. But also, it shows us our weaknesses, doesn't it? It shows us, Josh, you can't make it on your own. Josh, you fell again because you were relying on yourself again. And it teaches us that we might grow. God uses all of these things in a powerful way. He uses everything in our life. He will not let one thing go to waste. And our crown is imperishable. Look at verse 26. Here Paul gives us another example in verse 26. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty... Thus I fight not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. And so there he says, um, I, when I do run, I, I, I don't run because I know my crown is imperishable. I know that my reward will never fade. It will never tarnish. I don't run uncertain as to whether or not I'll receive the reward of eternal life in Christ Jesus. I don't run wondering if what I'm doing for the Lord will come to anything good. I know it will. I run with certainty, not uncertainty. And he says, thus I fight not as one who beats the air. You know, it'd be a pretty boring boxing match if there was only one boxer in the ring, wouldn't it? And Paul says, I'm fighting a real fight here. I'm not just swinging, doing nothing, wasting energy. And what is he swinging at? Look at verse 27. He says, but I discipline my... You almost expect him to say, I'm swinging at that old devil, right? <laughs> I'm fighting the enemy. I'm fighting Satan. I'm fighting this world. But what does he say? He says, I discipline. That word discipline can literally be taken to hit under the eye. It's the idea of, yeah, you're, you're putting it through its paces. I discipline my body, he says, and bring it into subjection, that is servitude, lest when I've preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. What do you mean, Paul? 
What do you mean that you should become disqualified? Well, he gives us an example. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that, our, that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual walk, rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And so what does he use it as an example for us of this possible disqualification? He says, think back to Israel. You know, it's, it's one of the greatest victories you see in the history of Israel, when God brings them out of Egypt, followed by one of the greatest disappointments you see in the history of Israel. When they send the 12 spies in. You know, first of all, there's nowhere in the passage which says that God tells them to send the spies. God told them, just go. I've spied out the land for you. You don't need to. Well, we better check your work first, God. So they send the 12 in. What happens? Ten come back. Oh, it's not good, guys. I mean, it's good, but it's going to be hard. In fact, it's going to be impossible. There's giants in the land. And they look over at Joshua and Caleb with the fruit that they have to carry between themselves because the land is so rich. And they're like, let's go. Let's go. God gave it to us. And they are so doubtful in the word of God that they turn and they almost want to stone Joshua and Caleb. Say, no, we're not going to go. So what does God do? He says, okay, you won't. You've been disqualified. You're going to wander in the wilderness now. And your children will now go and inherit. Again, sad story, isn't it? These were the people who walked through the Red Sea on dry land. These were the people who saw the plagues in Egypt and were untouched by them because of God's protection. These are the people that saw the pillar of fire by day. Can you imagine that? I mean, I, I talk to so many Christians, and we, we do have a better guide. We have the Spirit of God in us. But I remember thinking, even when I was a young kid, man, I, I want a pillar of fire. Josh, go here. <sighs> okay, I'm going over here, you know. Or the fire was by night, I guess. Sorry, I think I said that backwards. Fire by night, cloud by day. You know what it was. Here's a cloud by day. Here, 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 here's, the, here's the fire by night. There you go, Josh. You just need to follow it, and when it stops, you stop. Okay, cool. Pretty easy. I can turn off my brain, go on autopilot, right? God doesn't want us to do that, obviously. But they were the people who saw this. And then they came up to the land and saw a few giants and said, I don't know if God can take care of them. And God says, okay, I won't for you. Because you've doubted my word. And that's what Paul does in these first four verses 
says that they, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all passed through the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. And that drink was the rock, Jesus Christ. And I think it's interesting, Paul talks, says spiritual there, thus not referencing the manna and the actual water that they drank. Paul's point is, is that they got more than just physical food. They got the spiritual food from God through Moses himself. They had the word of God to nourish their souls. And they still rebelled. In verse 5, most of them were, God was, uh, but with most of them rather, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Verse 6, now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. What is one of the ways that we can be disqualified in the ministry? Well, it's when we go after evil things. God wants to use us and he will. But God always cleanses the vessels that he uses. And if we bog ourselves down in, in wicked sin and in things that do not honor God, God's not going to use us and set us up as an example for people to see. God's not going to raise us up in a place where we can proclaim his word as an example if we can't, like Paul says later on, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He goes on to describe specifically the things that they rebelled in, uh, in. In verse 7 he says, And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And there he, he's referencing the instance when they make the golden calf. Moses goes up Mount Sinai, 40 days and 40 nights. They get bored. Aaron, make us a God that we might serve and worship. And so they, he says, bring me the gold. He makes a calf. They all, with drunk, in a drunken orgy, begin to dance naked all around it. And Moses comes down, throws the tablets down. It's a pretty strong symbol, isn't it? You've already broken the covenant. <laughs> Goes back up. Thankfully, the Lord was gracious. Verse 8, nor let... Let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. And that uh, instance is in Numbers chapter 25 when the, the children of Israel, by the counsel of Balaam, the Moabite king, sent down the young women and the young prostitutes to go and tempt the young men in Israel. And they sinned before the Lord and in one day, 23,000 fell. Verse 9, nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by the serpents. And I'm sure you guys know this story as well in Numbers, I believe it's Numbers 21, when uh, they, they complain against God. They, we're sick of this manna, God. We're done with it. I'm sick of eating this bread every day. I'm, I'm just, I, we want food. Why'd you bring us out here to starve? And God sends serpents nor complain, verse 10, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. It's kind of hard to know which instance Paul's talking about exactly because the children of Israel sadly complained so many times and had plagues come upon them because of their complaints. 
Verse 11 says, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the age have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you except such as common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And so here he says, look, look back at Israel, guys. You want to see people who have been disqualified before? Look back at the history of Israel. And with grief in your heart, see the destruction that they brought upon themselves and learn from it. Don't go after idols. Don't go after anything that would set itself up as God in our own heart. You know this as well as I. We don't really make carved images in America, right? We don't sacrifice to them. But we sure do have idols, don't we, in America? You know, it, it, it made me cringe when I first heard of the TV show American Idol. Now, if you enjoy watching that, seeing that talent, that's fine. Sometimes I'll watch it, see what's going on. Sometimes these guys are really talented. But I just, that name, ugh, American Idol. Yeah, that's, that's what that, the music industry in America is about. It's about adultery. That's what the movie business is about. It's about adultery. That's what the, um, the, the entire structure of American comfort and leisure and things and possessions and vehicles and homes and all of those things that we can have, they can become our idols, our jobs, our careers. That can be an idol if it sets itself up in our hearts before and in front of God himself. If that becomes the thing we serve instead of the true and living God, it's an idol and it needs to go and our hearts need to change. And of course, sexual immorality is obvious. And sadly, how many ministers do you hear of who become disqualified in the ministry because of this sin? It's a sad thing. And complaining, that's something we Americans like to do, don't we? I got my rights, and I'm going to complain if someone steps on them. You know, don't, don't, don't be a complainer. Be someone who glorifies God. God will use it. Verse 12 and 13, as we wrap up this morning, Paul gives us the remedy to fight these temptations. And I think this is so important for us to understand. Verse 12, look there, he says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. First, there's a warning against pride, isn't there? And man, that is something that all of man and all of the history of mankind has been one of the biggest stumbling blocks is pride. You know, remember Peter? Lord, I'll never deny you. I will die with you, he said. And Jesus turned to him before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. 
Not once, not twice. Three separate occasions he did. So take heed when you and I, when we think we're strong, oh, I got this, God. There's a rooster waiting, believe me. There is, and God will allow it to happen just as he allowed it to happen to Peter. Why? Again, to humble us. Take heed lest you fall. What should you do instead? He says in verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. And he's pointing back and he's saying, These temptations Israel went through, you're going to go through them too. They're common to man. Nothing that takes you down isn't something that, that mankind has struggled with. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. I love it. First of all, Paul says that you have already been overtaken by temptation. Nothing, no temptation has overtaken you. That's in the perfect tense. It's happened, and it's had a lasting effect. <laughs> Nothing has overtaken you except such as common to man, but God. I love, I love those two words together. Because you always go from darkness to light, right? You always go from despair to hope. But God, who is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Well, what does that mean, Paul? Does that mean that God will never give me more than I can handle? You, you hear that a lot, right? God will never give you more than you can handle. The truth is, is he will often give you more than you can handle so that you will run to him. And that's Paul's point because as he goes on and explains it, he says, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. A couple of things about this phrase. First of all, who is the one who makes the way? Obviously God. But that word able is in the passive voice in the original Greek, which means this, it's not your ability. It's something that is placed upon you. This way of escape, that you may be able to bear it, is something that God makes for you and he strengthens you to do. So what must we do? Well, we need to be looking to God in times of temptation, right? The best thing we can do when you are under attack from the enemy, when you are going through a trial, the enemy will do everything he can to take your eyes off of Christ and place them on yourself. And that's why we get anxious. Oh, I got to fix it. Oh, I got to do this. Oh, I got to do that. No, let the Lord have it. Fix your eyes on the Lord. Set your gaze upon him. He's going to show you where you need to go day by day. He will provide your way of escape that you may be able, by his strength, to walk in it and to bear it. What a wonderful promise, amen? And so Paul says, listen, we have these liberties, guys. We have freedom in Christ, but they're meant to serve others. They're meant so we can reach out to the previously unreachable. They're meant so that we can run more vigorously for the Lord, not so we can be lazy. And am I saying we shouldn't take time off? Absolutely not. You need times of recuperation and rest. That is clear in Scripture. But leisure and recuperation is different than laziness and procrastination. Laziness and procrastination is forsaking to do that which you're called to do. Rest is resting 
when you have been faithful and when you are being faithful to do what God's called you to do. So I pray the Lord gives us wisdom to discern the difference and may we use the liberties and the freedoms we have in Jesus for his glory, for the furtherance of the gospel. Not just so we can say, oh, I'm free in Christ. I'm going to do what I want to do now. In closing, I want to give you one last illustration to think about. Imagine your child, and if you don't, imagine you had one, got in deep with some card sharks and owed them thousands of dollars, and they were about to come and collect their money or your son's life. And as a parent, you looked at your son and you said, I'm going to give you the money so that you don't die. So you can pay them off. No parent in their right mind would give freely that money so that their son could go back to the casino and gamble that away too, right? And when we say, Christ has given me liberty so I can go back to sin, that's what we're saying. We're saying Christ has died for sin and taken sin upon himself and died and suffered on the cross so I could go back to that very thing he hates and he died for. No. You know, and if you have the Spirit of God today, it's not something where you're like, oh, well, but I, I, I still want my sin if you're trusted in Jesus and you have his spirit, you, just like me, you hate your sin, don't you? You look at your life and you go, I don't want to do that anymore. I fall again and again and I fail and I never attain to the perfection of God's glory in this life. But I hate it when I grieve the spirit of God with my sin. I don't like it when I quench the work of his spirit in my life. I want to honor him. I want to take what he's given me to glorify his name, not to spend it on my own pleasures and drag Jesus' work on the cross through the mud. I don't want to do that anymore. And let me close with this. You know the verse well. For where sin abounds, there grace abounds, what? Much more. There is grace for all those who come to Christ. Amen? Would you pr pray with me as the worship band comes up for our final song? Lord, we, we praise your name. We give you glory. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the freedoms that we have in you. And Lord, we, we, just, we pray that you would help us to live for your honor and your glory. And that you would help us to rely upon you in those times of trial. We love you, Jesus, and we know it's because you first loved us. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for being with us and never leaving us or forsaking us. And in the precious name of Jesus, we all said, amen.